0: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. A reading from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law, and how do you read it? Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him to her house and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister have left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord
1: Christ. Father in heaven, um, uh, every time we we come to your word, uh, we find it reading us. And we discover again and again um, that. we are not as we should be. And yet we also discover again and again that you are more gracious than we can imagine. And so we ask you uh, to show us yourself and show us ourselves and then meet us in the midst of our sin and our brokenness and all the mess, meet us There, particularly there. And there will you embrace us with your Holy Spirit in an ever-deepening way. So we look for your action right now in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And... um, It'd be helpful if you turn back to page eight, which uh, the long gospel reading, it's a very familiar uh, story there at the top. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. Uh, The second story at the bottom about Mary and Martha, also reasonably well-known. We're going to get to that as well, so keep your eyes, uh, be ready for all of it. Here's one of the problems uh, that Christians uh, often face. the standards that Jesus sets for us are very, very demanding. They're very, very high. And sometimes uh, they can feel um, just, just too high to really be manageable. Um, can you identify with that at all in your Christian life? It just sometimes seems like you know, Jesus' teachings are too demanding. They're unreasonably high. Can't pull it off. Um, years ago, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's not a believing friend. Uh, he he was kind of sympathetic. He he would come to church every now and then, but he wasn't a believer. Uh, and he said this to me one time. He said, you know the problem with you Christians? And I was like, oh, what? What? Do tell. Um, he says, uh, you guys, you you know, everybody th- everybody thinks you're hypocrites, right? You know that, right? And I was like, yeah, I kind of know that. And he's like, well, here's the deal. You guys are your own problem. You guys it's kind of your fault and I said really tell me more he says well here's the problem he says you set the standards so high uh with you, you have these super high expectations about about the way people are supposed to live and they're just more demanding than what anybody can really realistically manage and he says listen I know some of you church people you're actually lovely you're sincere all that kind of stuff but you're setting yourselves up for failure you should just reduce the expectations a little bit and and it would be better. And then I had another friend uh, who uh, was from a Muslim background and she said something similar. She said this, she said, you know, living in as, as a Muslim is uh, very, very, very demanding. There's lots of things. There's lots of rules that you have to follow. She goes, but as I study Christianity, it's kind of worse. um, Because she says, I actually find the standards are higher and not lower. They're different, but they're higher and more demanding. Now, I think my friends have have an insight here. Jesus' teachings, if you take them seriously, some of us have grown up with them, and so we tend to kind of tame them. But if you take them seriously, they're extremely demanding. And that brings up a question, and it's this. um, Are Jesus' teachings just too demanding for us to manage? And if they are, what does that mean? What do we do with that? Okay, that's the question Uh, here's the plan in our reading there uh, we're going to look at two people. And from one angle, uh, these people this lawyer and this woman called Martha from one angle they're doing everything right, Uh, they are uh, performing religious duty at an extremely high level, both of them in different ways, but from another angle, they end up getting everything wrong. They end up, both of them, falling short of Jesus's vision in a fundamental way. So I w- want to ask, what is it that goes wrong with these two situations? And how is it supposed to be addressed? And see if you can identify with, these, with what happens with these two people. Come with me into the story. Uh, start at the top, which is verse 25. Um, it says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, this lawyer is not like our lawyers. Um, This lawyer is more like a religious orthodoxy auditor. Uh, So this person's job, he was probably a priest part of the time, and then the rest of the time, this guy's job was to go around and uh, test, kind of strength test, the teachings of different rabbis and make sure that they were you know, meeting industry standards kind of a thing. And that's why he comes up to Jesus and he puts him to the test and he asks the big question. He says, "Uh, teacher, what, what do you think I need to do to inherit eternal life? Which in, you know, what do you, how would you describe a real and authentic relationship with God that leads, uh, that lasts forever? And Jesus is ready to play ball verse 26 Jesus says to him well what's written in the law, how do you read it so he puts it back on him. And the lawyer answered well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says well you've answered correctly do this and you will live. Now, at this point, it's really important to see that Jesus and this lawyer completely agree. This lawyer is a religious expert, um, and he's operating at a very, very high level. And in this little statement, he has successfully distilled the ethics of the old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures into a very simple ethical vision, love God, love your neighbor. And, and, and Jesus agrees. In fact, did you notice? We've already recited this in the service earlier. And we do so every time we, we receive Holy Communion. Love God, love your neighbor. So far, they're in full agreement. And then comes verse 29. This religious orthodoxy ninja says this but the lawyer desiring to justify himself says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, keep your eyes on that verse because we've got a question and we've got a motive. The question is, who's my neighbor? The motive is desiring to justify himself. And if you put those two things together, you can get a window into uh, this lawyer's soul. What's going on? Well, part of it has to do with the problem we just mentioned. The Bible's commands are extremely demanding, at least if you take them seriously. And sometimes, maybe often, they're they are they're more demanding than we can manage. Can you identify with that at all? Now, what do you do when the commands of the Bible seem to be more demanding than we can manage? Well one of the most intuitive things that we can do that we do oftentimes without even thinking about it is we try to justify ourselves what does that mean well it means that we try to demonstrate our compliance so that we can reassure ourselves and others that we're uh, good that we're religious that we're admirable we try to demonstrate our compliance And one of the most common ways to justify yourself is to do this, you take the commandment, maybe that seems unruly on the face of it, like love your neighbor as yourself. And then we limit the scope of that command and tell it something that is more reasonable for us to pull off. So for instance, if if I were this lawyer, I might say something like this, well, yes, of course, we can all agree that loving your neighbor as yourself is a, is a fundamental commandment. We all must do that. But the question is, who is my neighbor? So for instance, if I were this lawyer, I might say, well, my neighbor is clearly my family. Uh, my neighbor is clearly my village. My neighbor is clearly uh, those who share my religious orthodoxy and so forth. People with whom I agree clearly, those are my neighbors and they qualify for the demand to love. But on the other hand, if I find somebody who is not my family or not in my village or does not share my religious orthodoxy or with whom I do not agree on fundamental matters, well, then they are outside the scope of who it is that I am obligated to love. They don't qualify within the scope of this particular command. Now, because I might go on to argue, God is reasonable, and he won't ask of us something that we cannot pull off if we do our best. Now, do you feel the force of this logic, especially the last part? There's an idea that God cannot demand more than what we can achieve, and therefore the command must be made manageable for us. And oftentimes we think that way, well, we do that without even thinking it through. Well, at this point, Jesus rolls out his most famous, one of his most famous stories. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, well, a man, imagine a man uh, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. That road was a famous, uh, famously full of robbers. And the robbers stripped this man and beat this man and then departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. Remember, the lawyer is probably a priest on the side. A priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, also somebody who works at the temple, uh, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, pause, everybody. So Jesus talks about. He says, "Listen, I want you to imagine two high-performing religious professionals. Both of these high-performing religious professionals, they see this man. They take in the situation. They've got the information beforehand before them, but nevertheless, they leave the guy in the ditch. Now, why do they do that? Is it are they jerks? Um, yes." Um, but that's not good enough okay so they are too religious not to have a rationality for it right and maybe they said something like this oh my goodness you know they they they, they uh, this is a character but you know oh my goodness what, what, what a terrible situation crime these days um, you know we need better cr- law enforcement look at this guy um, it's a terrible terrible road it's a terrible terrible part of the country um but hey th- that's this is actually not my job imagines the priest or the levite because uh i can't i am a i'm a religious leader i am focused imagines the priest and the levite i am focused upon spiritual matters i can't get my hands dirty in social concerns i've got to keep focused upon god and spiritual matters besides if i touch this guy and he ends up dead which it looks like he's most the way there anyway. um, I'm going to be ritually unclean, which means I can't do my job, which means the temple will stop working, which means all of Israel will be put in peril. I leave this man in the hands of God. You've got to see the self-justification that can happen. You restrict the command in such a manner that you feel that it fits you given your specific situation and Emmanuel I want you to consider just how often the church uses this kind of a strategy to evade the commands of Jesus we do it all the time sometimes we do it in order to evade uh social and uh uh, justice ethics for instance And we often do that by uh, by kind of editing out or overlooking the Old Testament prophets and things like that. And we say, well, we need to be focused on spiritual concerns and therefore we can prioritize out of our way some of the commands of Scripture. Or in another way, we can do that with things like sexual ethics, can't we? You can see how that happens, can't you? Well, given my situation and the particular experiences of my life and so on and so forth in this particular relationship, it's such a manner that it, the command doesn't apply in this situation. Or sometimes we can use this strategy to justify hating our cultural opponents, despite the fact that Jesus gives particular uh, uh, command to love our enemies with special concern. And when we do this, we don't feel like hypocrites because we've got a justification for it. And that's part of what gives it so much power. Well, the next thing Jesus does, takes that whole strategy and just burns it down. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Stop. This is the moment when Jesus changes the terms of the question. Remember the lawyer's question. The lawyer's question is who is my neighbor? That is to say, who qualifies within the scope of the command for me to love? But now Jesus brings in a Samaritan and the bringing in a Samaritan throws that question out the window. Why? Because Samaritans are the opposite of whatever this lawyer might consider a neighbor to be. Uh, Many Jewish leaders thought that they had good reason to hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a uh, ethnic and religious minority within the land and the Samaritans uh, worshipped at a different temple than the mainstream Jewish community. They worshipped in a different way. They did not accept all of the uh, what we call the Old Testament. And some Jewish uh, uh, thinkers looked at the Samaritans and saw that they were the worst example of everything that was corrupting their nation. And therefore hating and opposing and being adversarial towards Samaritans was just a consensus view of many of the Orthodox. And so when Jesus brings in a Samaritan, he's throwing out one question so that he can address a deeper question. He's throwing out the question, Who is it that qualifies for my love? so that he can answer the deeper question, What is the quality of the love that I have? Look at the quality of the Samaritan's love. The first thing to notice about the Samaritan's love is that the Samaritan is compassionate and loving towards his enemy. So the Uh, mostly dead man um, is probably Jewish. And the Samaritan sees him. And despite the fact that he's his cultural opponent, the Samaritan experiences this compassion, his guts seize up within him with compassion towards his adversary. Despite the fact that in other situations, these two people might have reason to hate each other. And the Samaritan's compassionate love towards enemies is, it's preemptive. He's loving this man, despite the fact that he's not going to get any benefit from it. It's not reciprocal. It's preemptive. He's loving this man before he has any particular reason to love this man. In fact, in another situation, he might expect this guy to be a danger to him. But nevertheless, he reaches out and he loves the first characteristic of the Samaritan's love is that is, he is compassionate and loving towards somebody who by rights is his enemy. But then the second characteristic of the Samaritan's love is that it's extremely costly. Look at verse 34. The Samaritan spends a lot of time, a lot of, well, he spends a lot of money on this guy. Oil and wine are not things to be thrown away. And then he uses his own resources to transport the man on his donkey. And then he pays for accommodation at an end. And then he promises to pay this man's extended health care costs into the indefinite future. So the Samaritan loves his enemy at great costs to himself. Does this sound like anybody that you've ever heard of as a Christian? But then thirdly, the Samaritan's love is active and not sentimental. Meaning it's not just that he feels compassion, he does something about it. Now, this is very important because I expect that the priest and the Levite felt some level of sympathy. How could you not for this man? But sympathy by itself does not count as love in a biblical framework. Love is always moving towards really serving real people. Now, a little aside here, Um, this is one of the reasons why if you want to love well, You've got to be close enough to other people to actually get involved in life Now love is not restricted to family and neighbor and proximity and those sorts of things It's not restricted to that, but it does usually happen in that context. You've got to be embedded in families Or, or in your living situation or in your block or in your community or neighborhood or in your church in real and concrete relationships in order for this love to actually happen. Because love is active and not just sentimental. Okay, so the, the Samaritan's love is compassionate towards enemies at great cost to himself. And thirdly, it's active and not sentimental. And Jesus's point is that love for your neighbor is not about who is it that qualifies for this love. Love for neighbor is about loving people with this quality of love and without restricting it verse 36 says which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and the lawyer said what else was he going to say the one who showed him mercy and jesus said to him you go and you do likewise Uh, my friend from a Muslim background said that um, Jesus' standards are higher and not lower than what I experienced in Islam. And this is part of why that's true. Jesus is not satisfied by merely outward rule keeping, uh, outward rule keeping by itself will always lead us to self justifications and loopholes. Uh, outward rule keeping by itself will always make us like this lawyer. It will incentivize narrowing the scope of the commands so that we come out looking good to ourselves and to other people. And Jesus is trying to slam the door on that approach, that whole tactic, because he requires not just outward conformity, but inward motivation as well. And that inward motivation, you can't fake it for forever. Let me introduce you now to someone called Martha. This is at the end of the reading. Martha's different. The lawyer tries to evade obedience and justify himself at the same time. But Martha's different because Martha is amazing. She doesn't evade anything. Uh, Martha... Uh, is this remarkable servant. And you really can't understand Martha unless you start by admiring her. So Martha welcomes Jesus into her house. And it's not just that Martha is a good, uh, you know, is into entertaining people. Uh, Martha actually uh, redeploys her house to be a kind of training center for Jesus and his movement. Um, It it appears that each time Jesus and his disciples were near Jerusalem, that they would stay at Martha's house, because it was within walking distance to the city of Jerusalem. And if this lawyer is a ninja at theological correctness, uh, Martha is a ninja at serving people in a way that is active and not sentimental and costly. However, despite that, um, inwardly she has a heart problem so jesus and his followers they come into the house jesus starts teaching in the main room and uh, typically in most rabbis only men were allowed in the main room of the house when the rabbi was teaching uh, but jesus was different uh, and mary martha's sister comes into the room and sits herself right down in the midst of the male disciples and jesus welcomes her And Jesus welcomes her with the same dignity that he welcomed all of his male disciples. Now, there's reason to think that Martha may have uh, thought that Mary was out of line. She may have wanted Jesus to put Mary, in a sense, uh, back into more expected roles. That might be it. Or it might be something else. It might be that Martha was actually a little bit envious. Of Mary. Um, In verse 40, it says that Martha was distracted by much serving. And the word distracted there can mean she was pulled away from the things she really wanted. So it may have been that she wanted to be in that room right next to Mary listening to Jesus, but she felt obligated to keep the party going. We're not exactly sure, but whatever was going on, she ended up resentful. And she resents both Mary, but she also resents Jesus. And in verse 40, again, not evading anything, she says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now, self-justification is when you narrow the scope of the command so that you can feel good about your performance. Self-righteousness, however, is when you feel that you've performed an awful lot. And that leads you to compare yourself to others. And very often you either feel superior or sometimes you feel resentful towards those who you do not feel are pulling their weight. Now, uh, Martha did not evade like the lawyer, but she did end up being self-righteous and both are sin you can sin by evading a command and you can sin by performing it outwardly but doing it with a proud and a resentful heart and it can lead to a kind of adversarial moment with jesus himself um, which is always where sin takes us even the lawyer if you go back to the lawyer for just a minute When it says that he wanted to justify himself, on the one hand, it means what we've been talking about, but on another level, it means he was trying to win. He wanted to show himself as winning over and against Jesus. Sin always leads us to an adversarial relationship with Jesus. And you can do that by evading the command, but you can also do that by trying to fulfill it, but doing it with a, a heart that's starting to resent. Now, once again, can you see how Jesus' standards are high? And it feels like it's too high for us to manage. What do we do? Well, look at where Jesus takes Martha. Verse 41. But the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Now, this is an interesting moment because on the one hand, Jesus is clearly defending Mary. But on the other hand, he's also inviting Martha. He's inviting Martha to sit down and join them and listen to his word. My question is, why is that so important? Jesus says it's the one thing necessary. Why is this the one thing necessary? We'll go back to my friend uh with a who had a muslim background because there's more to the story she said that um, when i was a muslim she told me she goes um i knew i could never perform well enough um, try as i might i never could so eventually i gave up i gave up and she says but now i'm learning the teachings of jesus and at one level it's worse but in another way it's so much better It's worse because the standards are higher and Jesus demands more, not just outwardly, but inwardly. But it's better because Jesus performs on my behalf and he does for me what I cannot do for myself. And I find myself, when I see his death for me, I find myself loving him and wanting to obey him in a way I've never experienced before. Now the remarkable thing about this woman is she knew very, very little theology. And yet, all these years later, I'm not sure I've met very many people who knew Jesus better than she did. See, here's the thing you've got to see. Jesus's standards are higher than we can manage outwardly and also inwardly. And that's why you must listen to Jesus, because the solution is in the teachings and the message and the good news that Jesus has to give us when you listen to jesus when you sit at his feet like mary and like jesus was inviting martha what you will first find will daunt you you will find yourself in a moral ditch because you will find that either i have evaded the commands to just and in an attempt to justify myself, or I'll find that I've performed them in a way that I end up being self-righteous. But either way, I find myself sitting in the ditch of my hypocrisy. But also, that's precisely the ditch where I find Jesus. And I find Jesus, through his teachings, coming to me And I find that he has compassion on me, despite the fact that I have found I have made myself to be his adversary. Nevertheless, I find that he has a compassion for me that reaches out to his enemies just like me. And there he picks me up from the ditch and he begins to dress my wounds and he begins to heal me from the inside out. And he heals me, Emmanuel, with at least two precious gifts. He heals me first with the gift of justification. What does that mean? It means this, we all fall short of his standards, but he doesn't. And he's the one who obeyed his own teaching perfectly. And therefore, he is the one that can stand justified before his father. But in a remarkable way, through his death and resurrection, God the Father applies and credits his righteous record to me, even though I don't deserve it. But that changes everything, because it means I no longer have to justify myself. I rest in the justification of Jesus. And that allows me to be honest and to be humble. Yes! I fall short. I don't have to pretend anymore. And the moment I'm no longer pretending, hypocrisy dies. The justification through Christ alone is the antidote to hypocrisy. But then Jesus comes immediately with the second gift, and the second gift is flooding my soul with love through his Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus finds me in the ditch, and he binds up my wounds, and he heals me at the cost of his own life, And when I look at that, I find that that's a love that begins to flood my soul and it floods me and it begins to replicate itself within me like some sort of blessed, holy, good virus. It replicates itself and then it begins to shine out from me back to Jesus. I begin to love him with the same love that he has loved me, but I cannot love him without beginning to love the objects of his love. And who does Jesus love? His enemies, and mine too. And Emmanuel, that's why Jesus calls Martha to his word. Oh, Martha, come and sit at my feet. I've got good news for you. I've got news that can address the resentment of your soul. And that's why he calls the lawyer, come and sit at my feet. I've got good news so you don't have to hide anymore. And he calls you and me to his feet saying, I can heal your hypocrisy. I can make you no longer need to hide. I can heal your shame and I can remove all of it. And I can flood you with a love that will flow out of your soul to others. It's called the Holy Spirit. Won't you come? Won't you come? And you look at Jesus Christ and you realize that the God of the universe, so holy and so magnificent and bigger than the universe, is bigger with love than you can ever imagine. And you realize that the purpose for which you were created was to look in his eyes and to say, because you have loved me, I love you back. And so rejoice when you find Jesus's demands bigger than what you can imagine and when you can manage because His grace is bigger than the universe and it is beckoning you, come and let me heal you. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.